you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. From the Moon Broadcast Center at KPCC, this is The Frame. I'm John Horn. On today's show, with Super Tuesday coming up, the presidential candidates have Hollywood on their itineraries. Then, comedian Maria Bamford talks about the absurdity of seeking mental health care in California. You ride to him on a donkey, and it's $7,000 to reserve a place. No, no, no. Call the Domino's Pizza Place. Like, try, try something else. It might help. And 50 years ago, the Beatles won a Grammy for Abbey Road. You might be surprised by the category. That's today on The Frame. We'll be right back. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. The California presidential primary is less than two weeks away, and Democratic candidates are in a mad dash to raise money and improve their name recognition. And where better to build both than in Hollywood? Ted Johnson is the Washington correspondent for Deadline, where he covers politics and entertainment. Ted, welcome back to The Frame. Thank you for having me. So who came to town and what did they do? Well, Amy Klobuchar was at the home of Lorraine Scheinberg. She's the widow of uh, Sidney Scheinberg, who was a very top executive at Universal and also very politically active and in his career. Uh, and Lorraine Scheinberg played the wife to Officer Brody in Jaws. Yeah, uh, and it kind of speaks to what type of support she's getting. People who are moderates in the entertainment industry, probably a little older than you may see from some of the Bernie Sanders side. And then Pete Buttigieg is in town on Thursday. They've been out here raising money uh, at the home of Seth MacFarlane, who is very enthusiastic about his support for the former South Bend mayor. It's also being co-hosted by Lee Daniels. I assume most of these events are relatively similar. You pay a couple of thousand bucks, you show up at somebody's house, maybe get a photo, shake hands and hear a 20 minute speech. Do they all fall pretty much under that same pattern? Yes, pretty much so. Uh, It's usually the candidate delivering a variation on their stump speech uh, that you can hear in public on the campaign trail, sometimes throwing in a few insiderish comments and sometimes doing a Q&A with donors. Who are the kinds of people who are hosting these events? And are they typically aligned with one candidate or do they spread their love around? You are seeing some of that, but I think what really distinguishes this presidential uh, cycle versus past ones is here we are just two weeks out from Super Tuesday, and there are a lot of those traditional donors, the people who have been involved uh, cycle after cycle, who have not declared their support for one candidate or the other. I'm thinking people like Steven Spielberg, Jeffrey Katzenberg, Haim Saban, these people who are incredibly involved in what they have done uh, this cycle is they've either sat it out or just spread their money around 
among multiple candidates. So as an observer, it's a, it can be a little confusing just because someone has given to a candidate does not necessarily mean that they're going to vote for that person or they're going to endorse. A lot of people are just seeing how this plays itself out. We're talking with Deadline's Ted Johnson about campaigning for president in Hollywood. Not that long ago, I remember, and you do as well, the town being pretty much split between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama during the primaries. Has one candidate really kind of gone to the top in terms of leading Hollywood attention and money right now? Well, it's interesting because if you look at the numbers, Kamala Harris actually has collected more money from the entertainment business than any other candidate, but she's not even in the race anymore. She's followed by Pete Buttigieg, uh, who has raised, I think it's 1.2 million so far from the entertainment business. It's quite extraordinary that he's raised that amount given that a year ago he was an unknown and he came in and really became kind of a darling of the entertainment industry very quickly. I think a lot of donors uh, saw his candidacy as potentially historic. He'd be the first LGBT president. And they really won over by his message. They say, hey, we see shades of Barack Obama in Pete Buttigieg. Now, I also shouldn't discount Bernie Sanders. Uh, He's raised close to 900,000 from the entertainment business for his campaign. And he has a very enthusiastic number of supporters, people like Adam McKay and Susan Sarandon and Michael Moore, they're out there on the campaign trail for him. It's just that he is not relying on these types of high dollar fundraisers to finance his campaign. He's he's doing it through these small dollar contributions. And his message is definitely resonating, even in the elite circles of Hollywood. But I have to add that it's also tends to be the left side of Hollywood as opposed to the center left. So let's talk about the right side of Hollywood. It isn't very big, but have there been any conservative people in the industry who have come out and said things in favor of or given money to President Trump? We have people who have come out in favor of Trump who've been with him very publicly from the start, people like John Voight. There is a reluctance to come out publicly and support President Trump because there is a lot of blowback. Uh, I've talked to Trump supporters who said they just they don't want their names associated with him because things are so polarized at this time. But if Bernie Sanders is the nominee, we'll see. I've talked to centrist donors who are very concerned about Sanders getting the nomination. They won't come out and say that that is going to force them into Trump's hands, they'll they'll say, I'm just going to sit it out uh, if he ends up being the nominee. But we'll see. And once the primary in Nevada is over, will there be a return of candidates coming back to L.A. looking for more support? Not yet. Joe Biden uh, was supposed to have an event this week in Southern California, but that was rescheduled because he has to spend Uh, so much time on the uh, campaign trail uh, after a pretty dismal performance in Iowa and New Hampshire. But we're now getting down to just a week away, not just from Super Tuesday, but also from the South Carolina vote. So this this is crunch time for these campaigns and taking them off the campaign trail it has to be a, a very uh, uh, savvy calculation that it is going to end up being worth it to fly into California for a fundraiser. We'll probably see the candidates flock to 
California, uh, not this weekend, but the following weekend for those first couple days uh, before Super Tuesday. Ted Johnson is the Washington correspondent for Deadline, where he covers politics and entertainment. Ted, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thank you for having me. Coming up next on The Frame, mental illness and stand-up comedy might not seem like good bedfellows. Maria Bamford has a different opinion. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. Comedian Maria Bamford is known for talking candidly and joking about depression and anxiety. In her new web series, What's Your Ailment?, Bamford interviews actors and comedians about their mental health issues, but it's not all serious. She also has a new comedy special called Weakness is the Brand. Uh, I've had many friends and family sadly die of suicide, and uh, one thing that always bothers me, though, is that when there's obituary they, for someone who's died of it, there's always the number for the suicide hotline, and I know that's helpful. It has helped me. I've, I've called it myself. But as a person who's trying to kill themselves, it always feels a little condescending. Like, I know what the f***ing number is. <laughs> I'm depressed. I'm not a moron. Maria Bamford, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Well, I want to say, I think there is a consistent talking point in your comedy, whether it's early stand-up, your Netflix show, Lady Dynamite, your current projects... And that is your dogs. Oh, <laughs> I wasn't sure you're going there. Uh, yes, it's clearly the doggies. organizing principle yes. of everything you do. Yeah, Tell us about doggies. your dogs. Uh, well, uh, my husband and I have been together six years, so I've, I've always adopted older dogs. So we've had several dogs. Uh, our current doggies are Max. He's a ten-year-old pug from the uh, Pug Nation Pug Rescue, and then uh, we have Jackie Onassis. Uh, she's a rat terrier chihuahua. And have you been able to crack the code of impersonating your dogs? Because you do it with so many other people in your life. Well, there's the the classic pug. <laughs> but then, of course, you know, what is the speaking voice? You know, then it's it goes a little higher. But it's amazing what range they have. And kind of a different range than your parents, who <laughs> clearly have their own unique way of speaking. Yeah, my mother is currently obsessed with Weight Watchers and Delta. And if you put both those points points games together, it can really put shape and meaning into your life. <laughs> so she wants gold medallion status on Delta Airlines. Oh, yeah, diamond. But, oh, diamond. Okay. I mean, if you can hack it's it. It's hard to get there. It is so hard now. I just got gold. It was hard. Oh. So you do so many other voices. Does anybody do you? Uh, certainly. Okay. Melissa Villasenor uh, does a good one. Hi, I'm Maria Bamford. Uh, my mom's kind of crazy. She's just always yelling at me and stuff. And, and you know, I don't really like how your makeup is today. Like, 
And if you were coaching somebody about how to how to get you voice wise, what what are the uh, what are the tips? I think it would be a constant stream of apologies, kind of doubling back on your words, what you just said. I do a little bit of <sighs> sighing, and then <sighs> so yeah, go try that. And with anybody, do they say what are you doing? That doesn't really sound like me, or do they say? I really sound like that? That bad? Uh, or do you kind of make it a little heightened so they can't well, my par- have their feelings hurt? My parents are just grateful that I have a job. Um, <laughs> you know, my dad says, <clears throat> you know, whatever you need to do for money. <clears throat> They're very open about it. I had my sister actually request me not to do an impersonation of her anymore. But the other voices I have aren't any specific people, really. There's a businesswoman who some people have said sounds like a, a Diane who's very confident, and she never is at a loss for words. And then I have a girl I knew from high school. She's just an amalgamation of women who I've known who are really excited to tell me things that are kind of insulting. You look so old. Uh, a couple of years ago, you gave a speech at your alma mater, yes. the University of Minnesota, yes. and you had some, I will say, very practical words uh, of advice on how not to use a liberal arts college degree. Here's what you oh, said. Oh, okay. Oh, we get a clip. Don't do a touring Star Trek show of the southern states of this great nation. Uh, where you have to say things like, Greetings, I'm Major Lelanka, the planet Bajor. Get the F away from me. All right. Don't date a Vulcan on said Star Trek show and get an STD. Uh, one of the most popular STDs you can get, actually. I assume 50% of you have it. <laughs> uh, um, HPV. Uh, yeah, interesting material. Um Drawn from real life experience. Oh yes, yes. And uh, the other thing is, I talked about how I got paid to do the commencement speech. Was the other they offered topic. nothing? I think you countered with, with some crazy grand, amount, twenty grand. Yeah, and they said, "Okay, we'll pay you ten. Ten, yeah." Was the University of Minnesota trying to suggest that I could not get paid for the one thing that I paid them to teach me how to get paid to do? And thankfully, I tell you no. Uh, they uh, yes, yeah, so they came back with ten grand, and then I felt so bad about myself uh, that I gave the money away as a part of the speech to pay to kids in the audience that could pay down their student loans. But I could have kept negotiating and then you settle for twelve five. Uh, but the guilt of the old country had done its work, and I went with ten. And then I ended up giving uh, giving the money away, which sounds like a nice thing to do. Uh, that's the only way I'm able to do kind things if it is in public and it is grandiose. <laughs> so it's all about the recognition, not about the act itself. Oh, my God. Yeah. I am an atheist, but I'm nothing if not ethically competitive. We're talking with comedian Maria Bamford. But isn't that title, Weakness is the Brand, also acknowledgement that the things that define me aren't necessarily bad, that this might be who I am and it's what I'm going to talk about. Yeah. Um, well, it, there's so many uh, self-help books that will say whatever you perceive as your weakness is your greatest strength. And that has turned out to be true for me. Uh, that thing where I have no boundaries and can tell anybody anything uh, turns out to be a cash cow. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and and mental health issues, uh, I definitely felt very ashamed of those and uh it's been only good. It's been only good connected me with other people or, or that feeling, giving me a feeling of being hopeful. Uh, definitely, I experience uh, after shows. It's been really 
comforting to me how many people that I know that if I had another breakdown, I would have a huge community to uh, get support from. So. And you had a breakdown on stage, is that right? In two thousand six, is uh, that or is that kind of urban myth? I mean, was it around a performance? Or? No. Uh, what happened is I was I was put on a new mood stabilizer. It was a Lamictal, uh, which caused one of the side effects is cognitive, where you're unable to think or talk. <laughs> Whoops! And I was booked for four shows in Chicago, and I flew there, and I was trying to call these friends, going, "I don't think I can do it," and then. When I landed, I, I got to the hotel and I went on this kind of crazy walk where I lost all my identification, ended up I had cut myself, I was bleeding, and I wasn't able to um, put full sentences together. So I called my manager and said, ah, and um, he canceled the shows. And uh, so that's, and then I went directly into the hospital or I took a um, flight back home, which I was gold medallion. Thank you. Thank you for asking. <laughs> and I got a first class upgrade. If you're bleeding, uh, sometimes uh, they take you in. I want to play a clip from your chat show called What's Your Ailment? And there's a conversation you have with Jen Kirkman where you talk about the worst therapy or worst therapist <laughs> you ever had. She tells this great story. She never once said to me, you seem like you have anxiety because I was very jacked up. And I was like, and I want to be a comedian. And I don't know, but I have a day job. Like everything that's totally normal in your right. early 20s, she should have normalized it. Been like, yeah, that's everyone, honey. Like, yeah. you know, and instead she goes, well, maybe it's not going to work out then. And she goes, do you know Robin Williams? I go, well, yeah. And she goes, well, ask him. I go, oh, no, I don't know him, know him. Like, I thought you meant, do you know who he is? And she goes, well, if you don't know him, like, are you even in comedy? And I was like, I guess she's right. If you don't know Robin Williams, you're not in comedy. And she goes, I mean, I would assume, like, if you want to make it, be friends with him. He can probably help you. And if not, like, it's probably not for you. (laughs) I think... Just in the effort of trying to get help, I think there is something healing to that. And if it's especially shitty, the care that you get, there can be a buoying effect of that. Like I, I went on um, one of those Internet texting therapy sites you can do now and we started texting, which seems like a terrible way to have therapy. And then uh, I told her what I was, you know, working on, basically just sort of work-life balance type things. And she she texted me later. She said, Christine, of course you're stressed. You just had a baby. And it was weirdly helpful. Like, I was like, God, Christine just had a baby. I've never had a baby. And my name's not Christine. You know, who am I? What? In the scheme of things, there's a new baby in the world. And this poor therapist is toggling clients like a <laughs> madman. I'm fine. Like, <laughs> so I, I, I can, I, I think asking for any help sometimes is better uh, than trying to find the right help. Like Los Angeles, there's this weird th- phenomenon that happens where it's like, no, the only person you can see is this guy. He's it's very remote. It's in Big Sur. Um, you ride to him on a donkey, and it's $7,000 to reserve a place. No, no, no. Call the Domino's Pizza Place and tell him about uh, your your mother's uh, stage four lung cancer. Like, try, try something else. It might help. Maria, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted. You are a celeb in my ears. That was comedian Maria Bamford. Coming up on The Frame, 50 years ago, the Beatles won a Grammy for Abbey Road, and it wasn't for Album of the Year. 
As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Fifty years ago, at the 1970 Grammy Awards, the Beatles' Abbey Road was up for Album of the Year. It would become their best-selling studio album, and many critics declared it the band's best ever. But it didn't win Album of the Year. That went to Blood, Sweat, and Tears. In fact, the only Grammy for Abbey Road was for engineering. The Frame contributor Tim Grieving recently visited with the assistant engineer on those sessions, John Kurlander, who incredibly was only 18 at the time. I started at Abbey Road when I was 16. I was working with Jeff Amrick, who's the, the main Beatles engineer, and he started when he was 16. The first session I did was the Ballad of John and Yoko. And I was 17 then, and then I turned 18, and Jeff was 24. And later on, Alan Parsons joined the team, and he was 20. So one of the main points that I feel about the Heavy Road album is it's basically engineered and mixed by children. <laughs> I would help with the setup. I'd be a total assistant to Jeff, and I would run the tape machines, which was no mean thing. I mean, it was a... a a lot of work to do and a lot of potentially dangerous work to do because the stereotapes were on open spools. And if you spooled it too quickly or too carelessly, the whole tape could spool up into the air and destroy itself, which we tried not to do with the Beatles recordings. They wanted to improve on the previous albums, but once they'd recorded a song, they wanted to improve on the next song. So each song that was finished, the next one had to be better than that. And they were constantly moving forward and wanting to do stuff technically that had not been done before. Yeah, one of the things we did um, quite often on the Abbey Road album was we put tea cloths over all of Ringo's drums on the toms and the snare. Um, and that again was something I don't think had been that widely done before. One thing I can tell you is you got to be free. <laughs> Crickets from the EMI sound effects library. <laughs> they used to enjoy dipping into the, the the sound effects library was not actually a library it was a a big um cupboard with filled with old tapes uh, that had been made in the 50s and 60s and they used to enjoy unlocking that cupboard and saying what can we what we can we get so the other thing that was brand new for them was um shortly after the, getting into the sessions that summer 
um, they got a Moog synthesizer, which was, I think, the first time any of us at EMI had seen it. And the Beatles hadn't seen it before. And um, it was put, it had to be set up in a separate room. Uh, and it was, we had cables to connect it to the control room just running through the corridor. Paul lived the closest to the studios. He lived about five minutes' walk from the studios. So um, he said, I'm going to come in every day about half an hour before everyone else gets here, and we're going to do a take or maybe two takes of the vocal for our darling. So he would do that. He came about 12.30 at lunchtime, sing it once or twice, and then leave it. And it, I said, don't you want to hear it? No, we don't need to hear it. And he did that every day for about a week or so. We had all these short pieces that were eventually to be joined together as tape-up. I didn't know what all these songs were. They were just short pieces. And then one day Paul said, okay, we're going to do a rough mix and we're going to join it all together. And here it's supposed to be a medley. So we spent the afternoon mixing these short songs. And then about midnight, we did some crossfades. And right in the middle of it, between me and Mr. Mustard and Polythene Pam, was Her Majesty's, which had been crossfaded. And when we played it through, it kind of slowed down the momentum of the medley. And by this time, it was about two o'clock in the morning, and I'd been doing all the editing. Paul said, just get rid of it, and he left. I thought, I can't just leave this thing lying on the floor. So basically, I picked it up off the floor, I put it at the end after about 15, 16 seconds of red leader tape. And I actually put on the box, Her Majesty's at the end of the side, not wanted. And the next morning, they cut a reference lacquer of it at Apple. And Malcolm Davis, who was a cutting engineer, looked at my notes and says, well, I'll just leave it on as well. John left it on, I'll leave it on. So the next lunchtime, the guys came in and Paul said, okay, so last night we joined the medley together and we're going to play it through. And we played it through and, you know, have the big build-up to the end of the album and beautiful harmony ending of the end. And there was like this big sigh and everybody started really in silence. They didn't really know what to say. And the, just about as they were about to comment on it, this Her Majesty's track comes crashing in. Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl, but she doesn't have a lot to say. Paul just loved the way this thing crashed in randomly for no reason at all and said, keep it. I want to tell her that I love her a lot, but I gotta get a belly full of wine. Majesty's a pretty nice girl Someday I'm gonna make a mine Oh yeah Someday I'm gonna make a mine That was recording engineer John Curlander 50 years ago He won a Grammy for his work On the Beatles' Abbey Road And that'll do it for today I'm John Horn Thanks for listening We're back here tomorrow At the Moan Broadcast Center 
Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there.